Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from Scenes and Legends of the North of Scotland, written by William P. Nimmo and published in 1869. This book looks at some of the early scenes, legends, and traditions of the north of Scotland. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everybody who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. To all Spotify listeners, thank you for continuing to respond to the Q&A and for letting me know what you thought about your episode of choice via the Spotify app. As always, thank you to all existing patrons and sponsors and everyone who took the time to send a message or leave a review during the week. My goal is to keep this podcast free to allow access for everyone, and it's the support from listeners via Patreon and Spotify that allows me to keep bringing out episodes for those who need them. If you find the podcast beneficial... Please, of course, share it with a friend who may need a good night's rest, but also leave a review on your podcast app. Even one sentence helps out. If you would like to say hello, you can visit me at boytosleep.com. You can also support the podcast there with links to Patreon. I am also on Twitter and Instagram at boytosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Scenes and Legends of the North of Scotland The Traditional History of Cremati Chapter 1 Extremes may meet in the intellectual as certainly as in the moral world. I find in tracing to its first beginnings the slowly accumulated magazine of facts and inferences, which forms the stock in trade on which my mind carries on its work of speculation and exchange, that my greatest benefactors have been the philosophic Bacon and an ignorant old woman, who of all the books ever written was acquainted only with the Bible, when a little fellow of about ten or twelve years of age, I was much addicted to reading, but found it no easy matter to gratify the propensity, until, having made myself acquainted with some people in the neighbourhood who were possessed of a few volumes, I was permitted to ransack their shelves to the no small annoyance of the bookworm and the spider. 
I read incessantly, and as the appetite for reading, like every other kind of appetite, becomes stronger the more it is indulged, I felt, when I had consumed the whole, a still keener craving than before. I was quite in the predicament of the shipwrecked sailor who expends his last morsel when on the open sea, and like him too, I set myself to prey on my neighbours. Old grey-headed men, and especially old women, became my books, persons whose minds not having been preoccupied by that artificial kind of learning, which is the result of education, had gradually filled as they passed through life, with the knowledge of what was occurring around them, and with the information derived from people of a similar caste with themselves, who had been born half an age earlier. And it was not long before I at least thought I discovered that their narratives had only to be translated into the language of books, to render them as interesting as even the better kind of written stories. They abounded with what I deemed as true delineations of character, as pleasing exhibitions of passion, and as striking instances of the vicissitudes of human affairs, with the vagaries of imaginations as vigorous, and the beliefs of superstitions as wild. Alas, the epitaph of the famous American printer may now be written over the greater part of the volumes of this my second library. And so unfavourable is the present age to the production of more, that even that wise provision of nature, which implants curiosity in the young, while it renders the old communicative, seems abridged of one half its usefulness. For though the young must still learn, the old need not teach. The press having proved such a supplanter of the past world schoolmaster, tradition, as the spinning wheel proved in the last age to the distaff and spindle. I cannot look back on much more than twenty years of the past, and yet in that comparatively brief space, I see the stream of tradition rapidly lessening as it flows onward and displaying, like those rivers of Africa which lose themselves in the burning sands of the desert, a broader and more powerful volume as I trace it towards its source. It has often been a subject of regret to me that this oral knowledge of the past which I deem so interesting should be thus suffered to be lost. The meteor says my motto, if it once fall, cannot be rekindled. Perhaps had I been a conversant some five or ten years ago, with the art of the writer as with the narratives of my early monitors, no one at this time of day would have to entertain a similar feeling. 
but I was not so conversant with it, nor am I yet. And the occasion still remains. The sibylline tomes of tradition are disappearing in this part of the country, one by one. And I find, like Selkirk in his island, when the rich fruits of autumn were dropping around him, that if I by myself do not preserve them, they must perish. I therefore set myself to the task of storing them up as I best may, and urge as my only apology the emergency of the case. Not merely do I regard them as the produce of centuries, and like the blossoms of the aloe, interesting on this account alone, but also as a species of produce which the harvests of future centuries may fail to supply. True it is that superstition is a weed indigenous to the human mind and will spring up in the half-cultivated corners of society in every coming generation. But then the superstitions of the future may have little in common with those of the past. True it is that human nature is intrinsically the same in all ages and all countries, but then it is not so with the ever-varying garb of custom and opinion, and never again may it wear this garb in the curious, obsolete fashion of a century ago. Geologists tell us that the earth produced its plants and animals at a time when the very stones of our oldest ruins existed only as mud or sand, but they were certainly not the plants or animals of Linnaeus or Buffon. The traditions of this part of the country, and of perhaps every other, may be divided into three great classes. Those of the first and simplest class are strictly local. They record real events and owe their chief interest to their delineations of character. Those of the second are pure inventions. They are formed mostly after a set of models furnished perhaps by the later bards and are common, though varying in different places, according to the taste of the several imitators who first introduced them, or the chance alterations which they afterwards received to almost every district of Scotland. The traditions of the third and most complex class are combinations of the two others, within some instances a dash of original invention, and in others a mixture of that superstitious credulity which can misconceive as ingenuously as the creative faculty can invent. The value of stories of the first class is generally in proportion to their truth, and there is a simple test by which we may ascertain the degree of credit proper to be attached to them. There is a habit of minute attention almost peculiar to the common people, 
which leads them to take a kind of microscopic survey of every object suited to interest them, and hence their narratives of events which have really occurred are as strikingly faithful in all the minor details as Dutch paintings. Not a trait of character, not a shade of circumstance is suffered to escape. Nay more, the dramatist personae of their little histories are almost invariably introduced to tell their own stories in their own language. And though this be the easiest and lowest style of narrative, yet to invent in this style it is so far from being either low or easy, that with the exception of Shakespeare, and one or two more, I know not any who have excelled in it. Nothing more common than those faithful memories which can record whole conversations, and every attendant circumstance, however minute, nothing less so than that just conception of character and vigour of imagination, which can alone construct a natural dialogue or depict with a nice pencil of truth, a scene wholly fictitious. And thus, though any one, even the weakest, can mix up falsehoods with the truths related in this way, not one of a million can make them amalgamate. The iron and clay, to use Bacon's illustration, retain their separate natures as in the feet of the image, and can as easily be distinguished. The traditions of the second class, being in most instances only imperfect copies of extravagant and ill-conceived originals, are much less interesting than those of the first, and such of them are as formed on the commoner models or have already in some shape or other been laid before the public, I shall take the liberty of rejecting. A few of them, however, are of a superior and more local cast, and these I shall preserve. Their merit, such as it is, consists principally in their structure as stories, a merit I am disposed to think, which when even at the best is of no high order. I have observed that there is more of plot and counterplot in our commonest novels and lowest kinds of plays than in the tales and dramas of our best writers. And what can be more simple than the fables of the Iliad and the Paradise Lost. From the third class of traditions, I trust to derive some of my choicest materials. Like those of the first, they are rich in character and incident, and to what is natural in them and based on fact, there is added, as in epic poetry, a kind of machinery supplied either by invention or superstition, or borrowed from the fictions of the bards, or from the old classics. 
In one or two instances, I have met with little strokes of fiction in them, of a similar character with some of even the finest strokes in the latter, but which seem to be rather coincidences of invention, if I may so express myself than imitations. There occurs to me a story of this class which may serve to illustrate my meaning. In the upper part of the parish of Cremati, there is a singularly curious spring termed Sludic, which suddenly dries up every year early in summer and breaks out again at the close of autumn. It gushes from the bank with an undiminished volume until within a few hours before it ceases to flow for the season and bursts forth on its return in a full stream. And it acquired this peculiar character, says tradition, sometime in the 17th century. On a very warm day of summer, two farmers employed in the adjacent fields were approaching the spring in opposite directions to quench their thirst. One of them was taxman of the farm on which the spring rises, the other tenanted a neighbouring farm. They had lived for some time previous on no friendly terms. The taxman, a coarse, rude man, reached the spring first and, taking a hasty draught, he gathered up a handful of mud and, just as his neighbour came up, flung it into the water. Now, said he, turning away as he spoke, you may drink your fill. Scarcely had he uttered these words. However, when the offended stream began to boil like a cauldron, and after bubbling a while among the grass and rushes, sunk into the ground. Next day at noon, the heap of grey sand which had been incessantly rising and falling within it, in a little conical jet for years before, had become as dry as the dust of the fields, and the strip of white flowering cresses which skirted either side of the runnel that had issued from it lay withering in the sun. What rendered the matter still more extraordinary, it was found that a powerful spring had burst out on the opposite side of the firth, which at this place is nearly five miles in breadth. A few hours after the Cremati, one had disappeared. The story spread. The taxman, rude and coarse as he was, was made unhappy by the forebodings of his neighbours, who seemed to regard him as one resting under a curse and going to an elderly person in an adjoining parish much celebrated for his knowledge of the supernatural, he craved his advice. Repair, said the seer, to the old hollow of the fountain, and as nearly as you can guess at the hour in which you insulted the water, and after clearing it out with a clean linen towel, lay yourself down beside it and abide the result. He did so, and waited on the bank above the hollow from noon until near sunset, when the water came rushing up with a noise like a roar of the sea, 
scattering the sand for several yards around, and then subsiding to its common level. It flowed on as formerly between the double row of cresses. The spring on the opposite side of the firth withdrew its waters about the time of the rite of the cleansing, and they have not since reappeared, while those of Sludic from that day to the present are presented as if in scorn. During the moister seasons, when no one regards them as valuable, and withheld in the seasons of drought, when they would be prized, we recognize in this singular tradition a kind of soul or naiad of the spring, susceptible of offence and conscious of the attentions paid to it, and the passage of the waters beneath the sea reminds us of the river Alpheus, sinking at Peloponnesus to rise in Sicily. Next in degree to the pleasure I have enjoyed in collecting these traditions is the satisfaction which I have felt in contemplating the various cabinets, if I may so speak, in which I found them stored up according to their classes. For I soon discovered that the different sorts of stories were not lodged indiscriminately in every sort of mind. The people who cherished the narratives of one particular class, frequently rejecting those of another. I found, for instance, that the traditions of the third class, with all their machinery of wraiths and witches, were most congenial to the female mind, and I think I can now perceive that this was quite in character. Women taken in the collective are more poetical, more timid, more credulous than men. If we but add to these general traits, one or two that are less so, and a few very common circumstances, if we but add a judgment not naturally vigorous, an imagination more than commonly active, an ignorance of books and of the world, a long-cherished belief in the supernatural, a melancholy old age, and a solitary fireside. We have compounded the elements of that terrible poetry which revels among skulls and coffins and enchantments, as certainly as nature did when he moulded the brain of Shakespeare the stories of the second class I have almost never found in communion with those of the third, and never heard well told except as jokes. To tell a story avowedly untrue, and to tell it as a piece of humour, requires a very different cast of mind from that which characterised the melancholy people who were the grand depositories of the darker traditions. They entertained these only because they deemed them mysterious and very awful truths, while they regarded open fictions as worse than foolish. Nor were their own stories better received by a third sort of person, 
from whom I have drawn some of my best traditions of the first class, and who were mostly shrewd, sagacious men, who, having acquired such a tinge of scepticism, as made them ashamed of the beliefs of their weaker neighbours, were not so deeply imbued with it as to deem these beliefs mere matters of amusement. They did battle with them both in themselves and the people around them, and found the contest too serious an affair to be laughed at. Now, however, the successes of this order of people venture readily enough on telling a good ghost story, when they but get one to tell. I have thus given a general character of the contents of my departed library, and the materials of my proposed work. My stories form a kind of history of the district of country to which they belong, hence the title I have chosen for them, and to fill up some of those interstices which must always be occurring in a piece of history, purely traditional, I shall avail myself of all the little auxiliary facts with which books may supply me. The reader, however, need be under no apprehension of meeting much he was previously acquainted with, and should I succeed in accomplishing what I have proposed, the local aspect of my work may not militate against its interest. Human nature is not exclusively displayed in the histories of only great countries, or in the actions of only celebrated men, and human nature may be suffered to assert its claim on the attention of the beings who partake of it, even though the specimens exhibited be furnished by the traditions of an obscure village. Much, however, depends on the manner in which a story is told, and thus far I may vouch for the writer. I have seriously resolved not to be tedious, unless I cannot help it, and so I do not prove amusing. It will be only because I am unfortunate enough to be dull. I shall have the merit of doing my best, and what writer ever did more. I pray the reader, however, not to form any very harsh opinion of me, for at least the first four chapters, and to be not more than moderately critical on the two or three that follow. There is an obscurity which hangs over the beginnings of all history, a kind of impalpable fog, which the writer can hardly avoid transferring from the first openings of his subject to the first pages of his book. He sees through this haze the men of an early period, like trees walking, and even should he believe them to be beings of the same race with himself, and of nearly the same shape and size, a belief not always entertained, it is impossible for him from the atmosphere which surrounds them to catch those finer traits of form and feature by which he could best identify them with the species. 
and hence a necessary lack of interest. The histories of single districts of country rarely ascend into so remote an antiquity as to be lost like those of nations in the ages of fable. It so happens, however, whether fortunately or otherwise, for the writer, that in this respect the old shire of Cromarty differs from every other in the kingdom. Sir Thomas Urquhart, an ingenious native of the district, who flourished about the middle of the 17th century, has done for it all that the chroniclers and Senachies of England and Ireland have done for their respective countries, and as he united to a vigorous imagination a knowledge of what is excellent in character, instead of peopling it with the cacodemons of the one kingdom, or the resuscitated Andalusians of the other, he has bestowed upon it a longer line of heroes and demigods that can be exhibited by the annals of either. I avail myself of his writings on the strength of that argument which O'Flaherty uses in his Oxygia as an apology for the story of the three fishermen who were driven by the tempest into a haven of Ireland fifteen days before the universal deluge. Where there is no room, says this historian, for just disquisition and no proper field of inquiry, we must rely on the common suffrages of the writers of our country, to whose opinions I voluntarily subscribe. Alpos, the 43rd in a direct line from Jaffet, was the first, says Sir Thomas, who discovered that part of Scotland which has since been known by the name of Cromarty. He was contemporary with the Rehobam, the fourth king of Israel, and a very extraordinary personage, independent of his merits as a navigator. For we must regard him as constituting a link which divides into ancestors and descendants, a chain that depends unbroken from the creation of Adam to the present times, and which either includes in itself or serves to connect by its windings and involutions some of the most famous people of every age of the world. His grandmother was a daughter of Chalcedo and Tyrion, who founded Carthage, and who must have lived several ages before the Dido of Virgil. His mother travelled from a remote eastern country to profit by the wisdom of Solomon, and is supposed by many, says Sir Thomas, to have been the Queen of Sheba. Nor were his ancestors a whit less happy in their friends than in their consorts. There was one of them intimately acquainted with Nimrod, the founder of the Assyrian Empire and the builder of Babel. Another sat with Abraham in the door of his tent, sharing with him his feelings of sorrow and horror when the fire of destruction was falling on the cities of the plain, a third after accompanying Bacchus in his expedition to the Indies. The gem might have still been in the family, 
had not one of his descendants given it to Penthesilia, that queen of the Amazons who assisted the Trojans against Agamemnon. Buchanan had expressed his astonishment that the chroniclers of Britain, instead of appropriating to themselves honourable ancestors out of the works of the poets, should rather, through a strange perversity, derive their lineage from the very refuse of nations. Sir Thomas seems to have determined not to furnish a similar occasion of surprise to any future historian. There were princes of his family who reigned with honour over Achaia and Spain, and a long line of monarchs who flourished in Ireland before the expedition of Fergus I. The era of Olypos was one of the most important in the history of Britain. It was that in which the inhabitants first began to build cities and to distinguish their several provinces by different names. It witnessed the erection of the city of York by Alberac, a brother-in-law of Olypos and saw the castle of Edinburgh founded by a contemporary chieftain of Scotland, who had not the happiness of being connected to him, and whose name has therefore been lost. The historian assigns too, to the same age, the first use of the term Albion, as a name for the northern division of the island, a term which afterwards, by an Eolic dialect, came to be pronounced Albion, or Alban. Much of a similar character, as appears from Sir Thomas, could have been brought under their notice in the reign of Charles I, when, as he states in one of his treatises, the names of all places in the Shire of Cromarty whether promontories, fountains, rivers, or lakes, were of pure and perfect Greek. Since that time, however, many of these names have been converted into choice trophies of the learning and research of those very etymologists. Even the derivation of the term suitors has been disputed but by the partisans of languages less ancient than either Greek or Gaelic. The one party write the contested disyllable suitors, the other suitors, and defend their different modes of spelling, each by a different legend. A species of argument practised at one time, with much ingenuity and success by the contending orders, of Saint Dominic and Loyola. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story and this book. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast. Until next time, good night.